Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, I'm so excited. We are speaking to the New York Times bestselling author of the new book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. I'm talking about Chris Herring. Also, I've got some choice words about Barry Bonds not making it to the Hall of Fame. We're going to have some Jake's takes and more. But first, let's talk to the man himself, Chris Herring. Just start with the obvious. I mean, the the Knicks of the 90s, they, they never won a chip. They only went to two NBA finals. They never got past Michael Jordan. And yet the interest both around your book and frankly around this team is is very intense. And my first question is why? Like, why, why do you think this team has made such a cultural footprint? Well, I think, you know, we, we were just talking a minute ago about where we're from. And I think there's something to be said for droughts in sports and, and just the intensity that comes with that. Um, and not just a drought in terms of winning a championship, but really a drought from being sustainably good and consistently good uh, for the Knicks. When you consider that, I think you consider that they are essentially have been the only basketball team in the city. I know the Nets are there now, um, but weren't during the era that I was writing about. And so I think for a city that has pairs, for most teams, uh, baseball and the Yankees and the Mets and football with the Jets and Giants. I think the Knicks kind of having the city to themselves uh, is a factor and, you know, kind of a, a sleeping giant, so to speak, where even when the team is horrible, there's reason to think that they could be good because they're spending more money than everyone else and, you know, leading the league in terms of what they're spending in salary cap. So I, I think there's a lot that goes into it where kind of hope springs eternal uh, but but also um, they essentially kind of have their own thing and their own um, just diehard loyalty fandom and kind of like this passionate hope for a breakthrough in the same way that I'm from Chicago and watch people love the Cubs despite how horrible they were um, and then watched people have like this euphoric emotional outcry when the Cubs actually did win after 108 years and you know, had their old school radio and, uh, you know, would, would go to the cemetery to place them down at their grandfather's grave so that they could listen to the Cubs break through and win the World Series. Like, uh, that's it, it. It sounds I'm not I'm not trying to make it too light, but, you know, on, on some level, it probably sounds weird to some people, but it's almost kind of like a religious sort of thing for these fans. And um, I mean, we see it, the whole bing bong thing. This summer, uh, or maybe not this summer, early this fall, I, I get that it's funny, but I also think that people are that passionate and I think they're that desperate to kind of hold on to something or to, to want to start something because they remember what the 90s were like. And it was a very special time and, and a team that worked its butt off despite no one thought that was the most talented team. I think they had more skill than they get credit for, but they were up against pretty sizable odds against Michael Jordan and um and almost won anyway and uh and, and so i think there's no shame in them not having gotten it done but i think that people people essentially treat them as if they did win a championship and i think that's really rare and unusual hmm. when you were considering what book to write i'm imagining you with like a big uh, dry erase board uh putting up <laughs> topics. you know you're, you're a basketball guy you know and 
you're going through all these basketball narratives from history and you're thinking, I want to do something historical, but recent. And how did you circle to this topic, to this winning topic, which is hit such a bullseye with people? Uh, I wish I could take credit, Dave. Um, my, well, not my literary agent, a literary agent hit me up. I did not have one because I'd never written a book before. So, um, someone reached out to me, um, through the great Jonathan Abrams, who's had a couple of bestsellers himself. And um, this literary agent, you know, doing the job of a literary agent was trying to be in touch with publishing houses, asking like, what sorts of books do you feel like you really want to see in the next few years that aren't out there that you feel like would sell, that you'd want someone to create? And <laughs> very wisely, you know, him asking that question, a lot of the heads of the publishing houses are Knicks fans because all the publishing houses are headquartered in New York. The Knicks have been terrible for 20 years. And so um, I think at least three or four of them all said, we'd love to see a nineties Knicks book. Uh, we think the nostalgia is there. You know, the, the publishing houses themselves had people that were fans of the team uh, and fans of the personalities, fans of Pat Riley, what, what have you. So all these things were kind of being talked about and he said, okay, well then I guess it would be smart for me to go find an author to do that, something like that. Um, so he, I'm sorry. Just you're, you're a Chicago guy. Um, this is then clearly not your, your dream book. The thing you grew up wanting to write, you know, about the Knicks in the nineties, what would be your Chicago sports book that you, you would love to write if you could one that speaks to your childhood and, you know, like I I'm, I'm too, I've said this a couple of times. I'm probably too young to really, like, I'd certainly watched the Jordan era. I don't think I knew what I was watching. I was four when the Knicks hired Pat Riley. I was eight by the time that he left the Knicks, um, which is not really old. Like, so to me, it's funny. I grew up in Chicago, but I didn't have knowledge, it, certainly as a kid. And even I would say until I was an adult that the Knicks and the, the Bulls like had this fiery rivalry at one point. I didn't know that, you know, and, um, and then knowing the Bulls history and everything, I was kind of like a spoiled kid that you know the team in our city won championships all the time so i just kind of figured like the parades that we would get you know in the middle of the summer were essentially like back to school parades you know it's the same thing like we just get them every year everyone gets these this is awesome we just happen to have a, a guy that's really good that a lot of people like and michael jordan so i didn't really know anything different but i didn't know the ins and outs of why the team broke up or was breaking up i didn't know the ins and outs of who the Knicks, the bulls rivals were I didn't know anything about the Knicks. I couldn't have told you anybody that played for them when I was eight or nine years old. So um, the, the the Bulls really weren't like a dream book for me either. Uh, and I'm not I'm not a Cubs fan. I'm not a Bears fan. I'm, you know, I, I claim to be a White Sox fan. But during the years where they were completely, completely relevant, I really wasn't paying much attention. Um, and I stopped really being Bulls fan once Michael Jordan left. So I guess, you know bad to think that maybe I was a Fairweather fan as a nine-year-old, but I probably was. Um, so I don't think that I had much like loyalty or desire to write necessarily anything about like a Chicago team. And I don't know that I had one to write about a New York team. The way I figured I would do it at some point if I wrote a book is that I would do the beat writer thing where if a team that I cover wins a championship, I'll do like a, you know, the story of that season, which I feel like generally that happens everywhere. Um, and, but that's not necessarily, it's not to, downplay anything but i don't think it's a special to do that sort of book because there are always those books that come out uh so this was different you know someone pitched it to me 
I said no initially, but then I thought about it more. I was like, well, I'm young enough. I'm not married. I don't have a family. Um, and if I do want to do a book of my own someday about another subject, about whatever, this could be a really good foot to start on um, to work on something along these lines. I know there's a very passionate following when it comes to the Knicks. I know there's a very passionate following when it comes to that team. Um, I don't know that I was as aware of how different this team was and kind of in some ways paradigm shifting this team was, whether people recognize that or not, about the league wanting to essentially get rid of a team like that as far as what they were doing and how they were shifting the league and how they were scaring opponents and how they were hurting potentially star players. Um, and so the rules would shift because of them. But I don't think I knew that when I when I took on the project. I just knew it was like a group of interesting characters and a group of people that people were really passionate about. And I did figure that there was like a built-in audience. At least New Yorkers would buy the book. And uh, there are a lot of people that live in New York. So, you know, you could do a lot worse as far as getting publishers' attention with who you're writing to. Uh, that's certainly true. I think um, like a book about the, the KG era in Minnesota, for example, might have less currency than the Knicks of the 90s, which does have this uh, built-in audience. And you're right. Like, I think a way to explain the interest and success of the book so far is is just the drought. It's like people love this team and want to remember and live through the times that they were good. I can tell you, like, there, there's a group chat with me and my high school buddies about your book. And it's, uh, oh. My, oh, yeah. Oh, no, we're all reading it. And Lev was like, my friend Lev, I'm saying it like you know who he is. It's like I had to put <laughs> down when, uh, when with the Charlie Ward situation with my, the Miami Heat and everybody getting suspended. He said it was, mm. it was too hard to read that through. And I was like, wow. Like, we're, wow. we're, start, start, we're starting to get our hearts out on our sleeves. We're starting to get, you know, like uh, personal and real. Like, in, I hear in, you. As is people, it's it's touching people because, you know, we were so close and it did feel like we had something special. Only to have it dissipate in the cruelest possible ways, the, the Patrick Ewing finger roll, you know, everything, John Starks. I mean, it's just this series of cruelties in the 90s that pile on top of each other that I think also makes it very compelling. Um, okay, enough about me. I'm, I'm talking too much. I, I, no, no, please. I want to hear that. I mean, it's uh, something that I don't, it's weird. And um, Scott Van Pelt asked me this the other night. Uh, he, he essentially played a word association game with me because he, he said a lot of the same things you were saying as far as like, I know you've probably been asked so much about certain things. So let me make this different for you. And so we played a word association game. The first word he gave me was objectivity. And he was saying like, how did, you not really having a dog in this fight. You're even saying that you really weren't a Bulls fan during some of the years that this was happening. You're too young to really absorb that. Um, how did that change the way you approach the book? And it's weird because for me, I could write about that stuff without emotion. Now I can certainly try to invoke some emotion in writing it, but I, you know, I more or less was just kind of stating the facts of what happened and trying to fill in as much backstory that people didn't know, like the fact that Charlie Ward and PJ Brown were in chapel together before this happened, you know, and that they were friendly before this happened. And I think to some extent friendly now. Um, and, but it's interesting, like talking to Michael Kay uh, or listening to Michael Kay here in New York, uh, the radio host, he had Jeff Van Gundy on, they were talking about it and they were both talking about how they got emotional um, and choked up a little bit when they were reading parts of it. And I was like, I didn't know, uh, I, I didn't intend to do that necessarily. Like I said, I'm trying to stir some emotion in certain parts, but I didn't 
you know, but I didn't live it in that way. Not only did I not see it happen as a kid or, you know, certainly as an adult until I started researching, but I don't have the emotional ties to it. So it's helpful to hear from people that you, you want to invoke passion when people read your book. And uh, I just think it tells you how passionate people like you and your friends and a whole lot of other New Yorkers are and, uh, and still thinking about this team and how close they were. You know, I, I heard you say in an interview about your, your father being a sociology professor. Um, how did your knowledge of sociology uh, affect your approach to the 90s Knicks? Um, what I would say is <laughs> probably, and even I even cringed a little bit the other day. I didn't correct him because it's an honor to be, I, I probably should have, I'm probably being a wuss, but like being on someone's podcast is an honor you know the reason i thanked you when, when i came on and, and we'll thank you before we take off um you know to be able to plug the book but man when you think about the language and i, I know you gone through this just your kaepernick stuff and and what you choose to write about generally and talking about race as um, pointedly as you do the language that people use to talk about these guys particularly when you turn back the clock 25 30 years is really disgusting in some cases. Um, and I, I, I think I make one allusion to it uh, when I think I say, when there's a writer that actually wrote for the magazine Art at Cornell uh, that says when push came to thug uh, during, you know, in, in writing, trying to be clever essentially with wordplay. Um, but it was just so loosely thrown around and you watch games from that era watching you know the Knicks Piston series in 1992 and people that are still announcing in the league and still have like prominent roles that play-by-play people using the word thug so loosely and people that are very respected people that are in their respective leagues hall of fame uh and we've seen it in other documentaries too the mouse of the palace and you know different things but like when we think about that People are described a certain way. Anthony Mason is described a certain way. Um, and the podcast I did the other day, someone was like, you know, quite frankly, this is a pretty thuggish team. And like I said, I held my tongue just because I'm like, let me just get to this podcast and get off. Um, but there was a lot of that. And you're writing about these people and you're trying to humanize them. Now, obviously, I'm not going to have that perspective as a young black man who, you know, understands the connotations with those terms. Um but yeah, you, you're you're trying to push back against that perception a little bit. You're trying to humanize these characters. Um, I delved into race where I thought it was necessary, or at least necessary to include, which I think maybe other people would have let those things slide. Um, certainly in the John Starks chapter, I bring it up as, as far as kind of something that got under his skin, I think understandably so. And someone calling him the N-word. Uh, trying to think of another example. There's something that comes up later in the book as it relates to Van Gundy um, and how he got the job and the idea that the Knicks considered giving one of the other assistants under Pat Riley, uh, I'm sorry, under Don Nelson the job, but chose not to. But one of the reasons they were afraid to give that person the job is like, well, what if we're not good under him? Then we have to fire a black person. Like you have a lot of people that think that way still. And I, I don't know that anybody would notice it with the avalanche of retweets I've had lately about my book. I feel like I've been very focused on my own book and the promotion for it. But um, someone posted a, a tweet in a video that is like my favorite of the last few years of John Thompson, who 
just talks about black coaches and black people and just wanting the right to fail. And the idea that there are so many failures, white coaches that are failures and white anything in this society that are failures. And when we talk about equality, yes, we understand that the best of certain groups and people and organizations are going to rise to the top. They'll find a way through it. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, doesn't mean that you won't still knock those people down in society some way or that they won't get assassinated sometimes, uh, unfortunately. But the reality is equality is everybody having the right to fail sometimes, too, that they might not always work out. But that doesn't mean it's a failure of that group of people. Um, and so there's something to be said for that, too. And I have an example of that in the book that uh, even maybe well-intentioned people can still have like flawed views and thoughts on hiring and other things like that. And, you know, and I, I developed pretty warm relationships with most of the people that I was writing about by the time I was done. Uh, that was about Dave Checkett specifically, but it was, you know, it was a call out in some ways because it's like, that's pretty, that's, you know, and, and I was glad to see that, you know, Ed Tapscott was the one that told me that called it out and, and said something, a black man, a black executive that later would become the GM of the team. But um, I felt like it was important to include those things, even though they were kind of in the background and maybe fundamentally didn't matter. I thought it was still important to in involve those details just to shape kind of the way the thinking worked back then. And, and, in some ways still works now for a lot of people, a lot of teams, what have you. Yeah, tell me if I'm getting too deep on the sociological tip, if I'm wrong or right on I'll, this. I'll talk sociology with you all day. Go ahead. <laughs> Is there something to be said for what New York was looking like in the 1990s, which was kind of a pitched battle between gentrification and the old way, Rudolph Giuliani, all, all the stuff about uh, you know community policing, broken windows policing, um, a lot of money coming into the city in the 90s. Is there any connection between the backdrop and why this team, you think, has so much currency in the memory of New York? Oh, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, me and so Spike Lee was was among the, you know, the first people to really give me a review on my book. Uh, he he get, came in possession of it about a week before it came out. And we had like a two hour conversation about it. And uh, I mean, he still to this day talks about how he moved down, um, you know, further down to the floor to courtside as a season ticket holder over a 10 year span, 15 year span. And now he's been courtside for a while now. Um, but I imagine that a lot of people started at the third level. And I imagine some people had to let their tickets go, despite the fact, you know, you always hope to move up. Um, it was interesting because during those years, and I didn't get into this too much, and I could explain why. A lot of it had to do with deadline, and a lot of it had to do with me not really having enough time to really fully explore it. And maybe where me being a New Yorker would have been helpful in explaining this, or maybe me really having spent more time on the front end of the book before my deadline was up to really understand the societal scene of New York, because I didn't spend that much time on it. But absolutely, like the city changed a lot. Uh, from the beginning of that era to the end of it. And it certainly has changed a ton since then um, that you, you, you had a lot of seemingly working class people that that was part of the reason they fell in love with the team is they saw like a working class sort of team out there. Uh, you do have your blue chipper and Ewing who, you know, would have been someone that lived on fifth Avenue, um, you know, but he, he had a, you know, a rough go as it related to race certainly too. And that was a big part of the book. But um, 
everybody else essentially like you know they were wearing hard hats and they were carrying lunch pails um and i think that absolutely resonated now i do think you always had something of a mix between those sorts of people that were diehard fans and could afford to come to the games and then the ones that were you know you also had and you go back and look at the intro the intros for the starting lineups back then you had a lot of people showing up in suits that I imagine were coming straight from their Wall Street job, which mm. I feel like you don't see that as much now. Um, but you did see a lot of that. So there was always like a mix. And I imagine at one point it was probably healthier than what it is now um, to get into games. You know, that it was realistic at once upon a time that maybe you could bring your family to a game in a way that if you're a certain profession, certain line of work, you probably can't do that now. But yeah. Uh, yeah, there was something to be said for a lot of that. There was something to be said for the time as it related to hip hop. And also, and I said this the other day, um, it's really funny. Like some people really miss the NBA on NBC uh, in those years and the intros that they would have for those games and kind of just the, the pomp and circumstance of those big games against the Bulls or the finals. And it's so wonderful, but the only part of it that's like a total bummer is like, dude, why are they playing this really old, like, white song for this league that has all these black players? <laughs> like, the league was so white at a time yeah. where it was clearly about to... It was really already so black, but it was like, man, they're, they, they... Between that and any any inkling of physicality or fighting or anything, like, the league just... You almost got the impression that the league wanted to do one of those things where it was like, if, if a fight started, they just wanted to change the screen with all those colors, like that please stand by screen, you almost got the impression they wanted to do that whenever there was like any sense that there might be a fight or any physicality. The league just really wanted to hold up this pristine image that um, sometimes didn't exist. And I think that's okay. Like it made the guys human. You don't want them to hurt each other too badly, but um, there was a lot of that going on as far as image preservation. And certainly once Michael Jordan left the league, and I think that had a lot to do with the fact that they were trying to, cater to a certain type of fan, which dealt completely with sociology, in my opinion. Yeah, Chris Rock in the late 90s, when he had that terrific short-lived show on HBO, once did a sketch of do you find the black people in Madison Square Garden, where <laughs> this in the late 90s, where, and the camera was going around, and every time there was you know a black person in a crowd shot, he would go, ding, and there were like, <laughs> with a little arrow, and there were like three dings as he's circling all around Madison Square Garden. And, you know, that's changed dramatically, but I think it has everything to do with the 1990s, scarcity of tickets, big money Wall Street, people coming mm -hmm. from work, and that vibe that it was less about family and community and much more about status. Like, you're seeing the 90s Knicks, you're seeing Pat Riley, you're seeing the Armani show, you're seeing a team that reflects the toughness that people think they have. Because everybody in New York thinks they're tough, even if they're totally not. But it's like <laughs> you carry that in a way that's that's a certain arrogance that I think the team really clicked with in a way that the Don Nelson team really didn't. I remember feeling like it was like a switch had been flipped in terms of the entire vibe and personality of the team just by switching from Riley to Nelson, which gets to my next question question because i know your time I, I don't want to take up too much of your time chris um i know it's important but i really to me the character that that popped in the book was pat riley and i wanted to ask you looking at his life looking at all the ways you investigated in which he speaks to players and he tries to motivate people 
is Pat Riley a heroic figure? No, I I, I don't think so. I mean, I I think there's something to be said. I mean, I I think he's clearly a a huge catalyst, but I don't think he's a hero. And um, I do think he becomes a villain, at least for a lot of people, you know, in the second half of the, the book, because he, you know, he obviously leaves for another team and they become an arch rival. And I, I would say that we talk about the rivalries and who people hated the most. Um, I, you know, I, I, that was probably the best rivalry of the late nineties. Like I, it wasn't one that resulted in championships for either team, but as far as just the hatred and the fights and the fact that every series was going to be extremely competitive and go the distance, that was it. You know, you can't say that about any of the other two series, four years in a row, they played each other back and forth, you know, sometimes one team would be seated in one spot, the other would be all the way on the other end of the spectrum. Um, you had the, the the Riley aspect of it. You had a Van Gundy on either sideline, which is crazy. Um, and you had two teams that were built exactly the same way. Like, it was a really nasty rivalry. But anyway, um, no, I mean, I, I, Riley certainly was the catalyst, and I, I don't think that they have the run in the 90s without him. Um you know, I, I think even when they get back on track with Van Gundy, he at that point is more or less like a Riley disciple who just has better personal skills as far as dealing with people, as far as talking to people. He still had um, a little bit of like a, you know, a curmudgeon side and maybe was going to get angry about things that weren't a big deal in a way that Riley could, too. But he also could kind of like put his arm around the player a little. He, he Riley, I kept saying this to I was talking to my girlfriend yesterday. She's reading the book. And she was like, I kind of feel for Riley. And I was like, why? She's like, well, you can tell he cares a lot, but he doesn't show people that he cares a lot. I think Van Gundy could probably show people that he cared a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have an anecdote in the book about the fact that he and, and Patrick Ewing um, basically go in and cover uh, a, a player that was only with the Knicks for a couple months. They fully covered that player's wife's brain surgery. Um, or, you know, chemo treatment for that, which was easily in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's like, that's, you know, that's not nothing. Like that's something that you only do if you have a heart. Um, and, you know, even if you've got all the money in the world, you're only doing that if you have a heart. Um, so I think that was like a difference where maybe Riley would have done something like that. Maybe he did do stuff like that behind the scenes and we just don't know, but Riley often didn't show much of it. You know, I, I could only come up with a couple examples where Riley was really, that way and i feel like everybody kept telling me about riley he had like a professional distance that he kept from everyone intentionally um maybe so that he could pull off the you know the heist with miami and and leave for miami maybe he wants there to be a distance because of stuff like that if he knows he's inclined to to look into stuff like that but um i don't know it in which way you could really describe him as a, a hero um and it's funny because book publishers asked me that on the front end of this when they were trying to figure out what to bid. Like, these are fans asking me questions. It's like, okay, this is a loaded question because if I say he's this and actually you disagree with me, am I not going to get a book deal now? Um, But, you know, I I don't think he's a hero. I think that he's a huge catalyst for them. I think that, um, frankly, I think he'd probably run his course by the time he left. Uh, I think maybe he would have had another good year or two, but I think he was wearing thin on the players. I think maybe he, he probably would have been able to stay with the Knicks, but I, I think he would have had to focus way more on the management side than the coaching side, just because Doc Rivers probably said it best at one point in the book. He was like, 
you use the messaging with us so much. And the idea of having us watch videos where Rams are headbutting each other and car crashes are happening uh, before we go out and play a game to get us to play really violently on defense. You can only do that stuff so much before it kind of like it, it's got nowhere else to go. And it kind of it wears us too thin or it goes in one ear out the other because we've kind of seen all that you pulled out all the stuff. So I, my bigger question about Riley is like, how does stuff change for him if the Knicks win in 94? Like, mm-hmm. is he someone that maybe then stays with the Knicks forever because then that monkey's off the back? It doesn't feel like the messaging is wearing thin on guys because they've seen it actually works and that you can win the whole thing with it. But once that didn't happen, and then once they didn't win in 95, I just kind of felt like something had to give, which is why he was looking for ownership stake elsewhere if he needed to. Um, so he's not a hero, in my opinion. I, I I don't know that he's the villain that he's made out to be, but I also understand that everybody was going to think that, you know, given some of the stuff he said when he was in Miami, given the way that he, um, you know, even with Van Gundy, like his relationship kind of soured for a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Um you know, just given that, um, you know, he, he essentially took shots at Van Gundy, you know, at times for the way he was coaching or the way he was handling his team within the fights that happened. Um, so I don't know. So I, I think some of the villain, the, the villainous nature of him was kind of overstated. I think the Knicks, almost like if you pull out a chair from someone before they sit down or in basketball where someone is backing you down, and you just kind of back away from them and they fall. I think the Knicks did some of that with Riley where, they knew he was leaving and then he faxed in his resignation and they kind of acted like completely jilted about it, despite the fact that they knew he was resigning. So they, they, the fans still to this day talk about how could you fax your resignation? Like it didn't catch the Knicks management off guard, but they acted as if it did to make him look worse, uh, which it, it, it does look bad. Like even if the Knicks knew it was coming, you could still tell them you can still, hold a press conference to say it or try to schedule a press conference to the team, but they knew it was coming and they just kind of were like, Oh, how, the, the shock and the awe, the, the, the gall, the audacity, like it wasn't, they knew exactly what was happening and they, they kind of played into it um, to make him look worse. And Riley essentially took the bait. Um, so I, I don't think he's not quite as big a villain, but he did still leave. He was still under contract. He did negotiate with Miami before he'd left. So I understand that. And I do, I think he's more of a villain than he ever was a hero. I don't, I don't know in what realm we could really call him a hero for the Knicks. Mm. You know, today we're living in an era of political athletes because we're living in a much more politicized time and sports reflects that much more polarizing. Nineties, uh, not so much. Um, of the storied New York Knicks team. And, you know, we, we've said their names, people like Anthony Mason, Ewing, Oakley, Starks, Greg Anthony, Doc Rivers, Derek Harper, who would have been most likely to be part of a political wave if it had happened in the 1990s? It's a really good question. And it's a really funny question, given what we knew at that time and what we know about guys now. Because you've had had Charles Smith go to North Korea and try to do basketball diplomacy. You've had... I mean, Greg Anthony said he was interested in running for president like the Young Republicans, you know, at, at UNLV. Um, I'm trying to think who else, really. Um, 
when I think about politicians and I think about, I, I actually, I have a very clear answer for you. I think it's Doc Rivers and I don't think it's that close. Uh, he's spoken out about a lot of this stuff before. Um, he's talked about how troubling kind of the state of the country is and how sad it is with regards to the election. Um, and, and the, the tone that comes has come out of the white house at times over the last five, six years. Um, so I think it would probably be Doc. And I think he's kind of like a statesman. When you look at that group, he's one of the most high profile people from that group to this day, um, you know, as far as having won a championship as a coach and having been one of the, the most eloquent speakers as a coach and uh, not really shying away from stuff. So I would say it's probably Doc. Um, before that, I was struggling to come up with who who I thought it would be, but I think it would probably be, probably be Doc. What do you think? I'm curious. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, only because I've met uh, and spoken with Greg Anthony several times. Uh, I always thought that the young Republican thing was more of just sort of a wink. Um, a counterculture stuff? Sort of yeah, I, I, I think. I, think I haven't Greg, talked with him about politics and, you know, I, did, I definitely didn't talk with him about it for the book, but I'm not sure if his views have changed either. You know, it's a great question. I don't know. I just uh, he's got. I mean, we see this on TV and whatnot. He's got a certain presence about him and a certain leadership. Sure. I mean, how else are you going to lead those UNLV teams, for goodness sakes, uh, when you have a shot motion like this? I mean, you better bring something <laughs> to the table. <laughs> just, you know, some people are leaders because of how they play, and some it's much more of what they say. And I think he was probably in that second category. Uh, so I love Cole Anthony, though. Um, as a player. Me too. Greg actually reached out to me. I did Zach Lowe's podcast, um, probably about a month ago. And, uh, we were talking about like all-star teams and I, I was not saying I'd put Cole Anthony on my all-star team. Like I'm not ridiculous, but I, I, I mostly was trying to say he's had a really unexpectedly nice season and deserves to at least be mentioned. And Zach like, was about to push me off the mountain. Yeah. He was like, that's a ridiculous notion. And Craig messaged me and say, like, hey, I I know Cole's not an all-star. Like, he's not. He's not this year. I understand that. But I appreciate you mentioning him. And it was yeah. really – so it's like stuff like that. It's, not, it's nice to throw people's names in to recognize that they're doing well and that they're having a good season. And, and by the way, his son's really fun um, on a really horrendous team that I actually enjoy watching because he's fun. Mo, uh, Not Mo Wagner. Uh, Franz Wagner is really fun. Um, it's a fun team, you know, so it was, it was nice to get that message, but it was just nice to give Cole a shout out because he's played really well. Anyway, go ahead. All right. If you have to be trapped in an elevator with one of these players for three hours and just make conversation, Mace, Ewing, Oakley, or somebody maybe our listeners will be less familiar with, who would you want that kind of three hours with? You know, you're in an elevator you know, you're waiting for the rescue team. You've got nothing to do. You're not getting phone reception. You're sitting on the floor. It's dirty. Who do you want to be talking to for three hours? <laughs> what a great question. Um, I'm probably picking Derek Harper. Because um, the other guys, I, I, I feel like I might run out of stuff with Ewing to talk about. He's a quiet guy until he knows you and warms up. And I, I, I get into a lot of that in the book. Um, Starks probably wouldn't be that bad to talk to. Um, I would worry a little bit that he just might headbutt me out of the blue. Um, Oakley 
mumbles a little bit too much. I would probably get tired of dealing with that after three hours. Um, and then Mason. Yeah, I'm just not sure. Like, there's too many unpredictable qualities there with Mace to be on an elevator with them for five minutes, let alone three hours. So I'm picking Derek Harper. And partly because he, I think one of the reasons he was the first person he came in, he gave me an elevator anecdote. Nice. Um, of, of a time that he was in Boston and was telling me that one time uh, Oak and Anthony Bonner were initiating him after he got traded to the Knicks and they just started punching the living crap out of him. And uh, Derek Harper was like, y'all picked the wrong one. Like, I don't know what you heard about me, but that's not happening. So he basically punched back. So an element of protection with him, but also like one of the more pleasant guys to speak with, like a guy that had a ton of toughness, but didn't necessarily show it in the way he spoke. But whenever I talk, you know, and Jeff Van Gundy without even flinching says that he's the guy that doesn't get enough credit for those years. Like if I was going to add one more guy, to the cover of the book between Riley Ewing, Mason Starks, Oakley Harper would have been the next guy just because I think he, when I think about those teams, I think about the starting five um, and, you know, Charles Smith started. So Mace obviously, you know, is on there, but Harper was kind of the guy I thought of like that 94 team is kind of the one that comes to mind for me. And he was a starter after doc rivers went down. So. Was your 94 finals MVP. If that Stark shot doesn't get tipped by Akeem, people. Yeah. Yeah. Very good chance that that happens. Cause I, people don't realize that Starks had a great series from games two to six, but his game one was just as brutal as his game seven. He was three for 18 in game one. So because of that, just if you're looking at percentages and averages, Harper was a lot more consistent and there's a very, very good chance that he wins MVP. And he, and he said, you know, that, um, that he he had prepared like a rough outline of a speech to give uh, just in case they won, you know, so um, because he knew that he was a possibility, he was already starting to think about the endorsements he might be able to get as a result of it. And uh, obviously it did not come to fruition for him. All right, Chris, I'll tell you, it's 11 o'clock and I can either ask you three questions or one question. And I want to be respectful come, of your time. Come, you've got time. I've got something I've got to do at 1130. So I've got plenty of time. I'll bet. Then I shall. I, let, let's talk for a second about sodium pentothal. Um, as a drug, it tends to make a person very calm and very garrulous. And of course, it makes them tell the truth. If you could inject any of these players, whether they're still with us or not, if you could inject any of these players with a big syringe of sodium pentothal and have a few hours with them, who would it be? Doesn't have to be players. Anybody from the book, who would it be? Oh, it's Riley, and it's not close. Uh, <laughs> so, because one, I didn't even get to talk to Riley. So, if I do, um, you know, I get to talk to him, and that would be great. But also, uh, <laughs> uh, the great Wright Thompson, you know, probably the best magazine writer in the country still. Um, you know, New York Times bestseller at this point. Uh, I think twice over. Uh, he, 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 he's basically the only person that's interviewed Riley for like a magazine length feature over the last 10 years. Really Riley's had like two conversations over the last 10 years that have really been penetrating in any sort of way. He had one with Wright Thompson in 2017 for ESPN, the magazine. And I think he had one conversation on video with Dan Lebetard, who him and Dan are more friends than, than really being like a journalist relationship with Pat. Um, so Wright Thompson, um, and it, I love that 
he did this as a reporter because it made me more cautious of what I included in the book. Um, Wright Thompson was going down, you know, the pathway of writing a, a feature on the guy. Pat said no several times, uh, which he always does because he very rarely talks. But Wright was able to kind of find something about Pat Riley or about Pat Riley's family that he essentially put before Pat. And he said, I'm not sure whether you know this. And Pat was like, whoa, I did not. And then Pat was like, okay, let's, let's sit down and talk. So that was how he kind of hooked him as far as like getting him to say yes to the interview request. Um, but also when he did it, like, so once Pat signs on everybody in his orbit kind of is willing to talk too. So Pat allowed, you know, basically told his wife that, you know, if she wanted to talk with Wright Thompson, she could too, uh, since he was going to do it. So Wright Thompson gets Chris Rodstrom, Chris, Chris Riley to speak with him. Pat's wife of, I'm not even sure of how many years at this point, but I mean, that's a big get to be able to speak with her, not to mention that she's essentially like in psychiatry. Mm. I, I don't know that she practices anymore, but that was kind of her, her career, you know, path um, at one point. And so Wright starts asking her, her, her questions about Pat, who for decades has told this story about, um, you know, he had a somewhat contentious relationship with his father who really was not warm and loving toward him at all. Um, it was very dark. And um, he tells this anecdote all the time about uh, the last time he spoke to his father or that he heard anything from his father. It was his wedding day with Chris Rodstrom. And, um, you know, cars have that just married sign on the back or, you know, the limos or whatever. Um, they're riding off. And as they're riding off, um, right before they take all the way off, Pat's father yells out to him as they're driving off in the car. Pat, always remember to plant your feet and stand your ground. Um, which, you know, is like a life lesson that, you know, his dad is shouting out to him. And then that was the last time he saw his father before he passed. Mm. Um, so he's told that story in magazines, television interviews, probably in his conversations with his teams. Uh, and so I think Wright Thompson runs that anecdote by his wife. And she said I, that that never actually happened. Pat has just kind of convinced himself that that's happened. And he's told the story so many times. So yeah. she and she basically says there are a lot of things like that, that because he did not have the nicest, warmest, most loving childhood, that he's kind of created this sort of like what he would have wanted in the image that he would have wanted it. So essentially you know, I, I, I had to read entire books on Pat Riley. I had to read Pat Riley's books um, to try to put together a pro portrait of who this guy is for my book. But I was essentially ignoring whole swaths of stuff about him because a lot of it, you know, all of a sudden is like kind of suspect based on what she said in that interview, which yeah. was some truth serum. Like, I, I feel like that was kind of her opening up on his behalf. Like, he hasn't been honest about a lot of the stuff because he's not proud of the way either that he came up or that he was, you know, loved as a child, which is really telling and like really effing dark. Yeah. Um, so I, he would be the first guy, like he was the central character in this book. I would have loved to know more about him. I just signed out a book to him two days ago. You know, someone with the heat organization said, um, I'd really like to give one to Pat. Can you sign it? And I did. And the, the, the first thing I said is that, um, you know, I was, 
incredibly fascinated with you. And I, I, I'm so sorry that we didn't get a chance to speak, which obviously that was Pat's decision. But I said, and you know, I also hope that someday that I do get an opportunity to sit down with you and talk. Um, and that I hope you feel like the portrayal in the book is fair. So I, it would be him in a heartbeat. I wouldn't even think twice about that question. That's very moving. Um, all right. You got a time machine. We're putting the Knicks on the time machine from the 90s. We're bringing them up to 2022. We're going to give them six months to adjust in a training camp to learn about the new NBA. Pace and space. You can't be fouling people like you used to. You have to play like a 2022 team and act accordingly. How many games do the mid-90s Knicks win in the 2022 NBA? Remember the six months. That's an important part of the question. So it, we're not, it is. We're not just plopping them down to foul and throw it into Patrick. Where you, they're, they're, you know, Patrick's going to have to be a stretch five. They're going to have to do more volume from three. How does this team who, do? Let me ask you this. Who's coaching the team? Uh, is it Riley? Pat, Pat Riley. The master adjust Pat. himself. I think they're a 50-55-1 team still. Wow. I mean, and I'll walk you through why, because I have thought about this, not necessarily that detailed and that detailed a fashion, but here's what I think. And maybe I'm, you know, like I said, I'm not a, a Knicks fan or I'm not like a, a fan of any team at this point. Um, but I do think this to be true. I can't think of a single key guy in their rotation that doesn't have a role in today's NBA. I, I, I can't. Let's think about it for a minute. I'll go player by player and I'll try to be somewhat quick about it. We'll go position by position. So you got Derek Harper, who's a guy that by the time Don Nelson gets there, Nelson wants the ball out of Derek Harper's hands so that he can make better use of him as like a perimeter shooter because Harper's one of the best shooters on the team. So Harper could shoot. He was a great defender. Um, now you do take the hand check rules away, and I do think it makes him a little bit less effective, but he was a big physical guard um, who could defend and who could shoot. Um, wasn't a great, great, great passer. They didn't really have great passing on that team, but was a very good player and a guy that physically is going to be fine in this era. So I'll say him, and and I think that he plays well in this era. Starks is a guy that had flaws, certainly, but also is a guy that led the league in three-pointers made back then at a time where the Knicks were actually taking a decent number of threes, despite how kind of archaic we thought of that team as. So I think he has that. Um, he was a guy that played very well defensively for how undersized he was, who would guard Michael Jordan despite being four inches shorter and would hold Michael Jordan at times to bad shooting nights. Uh, I tend to think that he's a better player or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe he's not. Maybe Starks is the guy that takes a little bit of a step back because he was already ahead of his time. So now if everybody's more in line with what he did then, maybe he's not a special so I don't know, but like he doesn't fit poorly in today's NBA. If he does, it's just because he's undersized. It's not because he can't do the stuff that people would be doing now. He was already doing a lot of that. So I tend to think Starks would be okay, but maybe he's not as much of a standout. So there's that. Um, I'd be curious about someone like Charles Smith. I tend to think he would fare better in today's NBA. Uh, I don't know if he would fare better in that lineup. I don't know that you would... Like when I look back, part of the thing that confuses me about Riley and the way he used Charles Smith is the idea that he felt the need to start him. 
because to me, I would probably bring him off the bench and let him play the four or the five, which is his natural position. I mean, he was a guy that averaged 20 a game with the Clippers before he came to the Knicks, a guy that had was tied for the record for, you know, uh, highest scoring effort uh, with the Clippers. We had a 51 point game before he came to the Knicks. So I tend to think he would probably be the guy that would fare best relative to what he did during the nineties. I think he'd fit a lot better and be kind of like the prototype and who knows, maybe he's shooting threes in today's NBA, particularly if he takes a training camp for six months to learn how to do it. So I think he'd be, he'd fare very well. I don't know if you would want to use him with Oakley and Ewing, but I think he'd fare very well, whether it was off the bench or starting or whatever. Mason is tailor made for today. Mm-hmm. He would be, you know, people make the Draymond comparison all the time. Mason would be a beast in today's NBA, even if he couldn't shoot. So I tend to think he'd fare very, very well. And then you've got Oakley and you've got Ewing. Oakley could shoot back then. Now, I don't know if he's got three point range in today's NBA, but he was probably one of the three or four most consistent shooters they had from 17 feet. He was a guy that had very good instincts as a rebounder. He actually talked about it on Bill Simmons' podcast the other day. He was like, oh, I'd be, you know, I would kill it rebounding wise because guys aren't even really competing for them anymore. So I don't tend to agree with that, that, yeah, your your rebound numbers would be inflated. I get that. But I still think he does the dirty work. His instincts were really good. Um, and he could shoot a little bit. And he was a pretty good passer for his size. So I think actually Oakley would fare pretty decently too. Um, he didn't have nearly as many. He wasn't athletic, but I don't think he had nearly as many shortcomings as people would like to think. And he wasn't just a guy that bruised people. I think he actually had some skill. So there's Oak. And then there's Ewing, who, I mean, the guy hit a couple key three-pointers anyway over the course of his career. But there's no way you convinced me that the guy that was essentially the best seven-foot jump shooter in the league during his era wouldn't be great in this era where there's more space to operate from. It'd be more difficult to double him with more spacing. Um, I'd like to think that maybe somebody works on him with his passing out of double teams. And, you know, and maybe he's better about that simply just because you guys have to run farther to come double him in the first place. But, you know, I, he was a good defender. He wasn't great the way he was in college on that end, but he was a, he was an extremely talented player that is probably better in this era with more range in this era. And, and not to mention that I think that with load management, probably his body is in better condition than what it was during that era. And that if Riley's coaching the team, you know, Jeff Van Gundy was on the radio the other day saying, Pat was a great enough coach to have adjusted to this era. So he would have had shorter practices by maybe an hour every day. And that would have saved a lot of guys' bodies. So I I tend to think that the Knicks with some load management, with a little bit more spacing, with the skills that they had, they were, they had skill. They just weren't the most talented team. But Mm -hmm. I think with how hard they worked, I still think they're a 51 team pretty easily, actually. What do you think? Well, first, I think that's a great answer. Um, second is, you know, I think Patrick Ewing would have feasted on the 2022 NBA and, you know, it's a superstar league. And if, if it revolves around Patrick and if it revolves around some of these really good shooters, all of a sudden becoming volume three point shooters, I think, and, and with the defense, um, I think you have something special there. And I mean, Mason, if people forget what Mason looked like in Charlotte, for example, I mean, yeah. Look, if you look at his stats that first year with that terrific front court with Divots and uh, Glenn Rice, I mean, he his stat line on a nightly basis is better than Draymond. 
has been doing this year. Um, where Draymond, I think, is going to be an all-star. Um, so it's, I think they would have been impressive. I think they would have been, frankly, a breath of fresh air in the league right now uh, because on the effort tip, I mean, they just they wanted this so badly night in and night out that that, that passion, which, you know, you can't separate from Riley, I think made them an exceptionally fun and interesting watch. Which gets to my last question, which is the, the painful one. Uh, the really painful one. All right, so picture it. It's 1994. Uh, I'm just in college. I know a lot less about basketball than I think I do. I'm watching Game 7 with all my buddies. We are under all kinds of lovely uh, chemical commerce because we're freaking out about watching this game. I mean, we're all like in a state of just terrible anxiety, so we're doing our best to tamp it down so we can even make it through the game. And in the third and fourth quarter, us, a bunch of idiot yahoos, you know, in someone's dorm room, are screaming at Pat Riley to put in Rolando Blackman. Oh, wow. wow. Screaming. This is why we got him. He's so good against Houston. He's, what are we doing here? You know, it's like, like we're just, we're, we're losing our minds that this one sub isn't, isn't happening. And, um, and there, there, there are three possibilities here at work. And obviously some of this is informed by your book, but your book also, you know, you choose not to be conclusive about this. You leave it open a little bit. So either Pat Riley is so fiercely loyal to John Starks and his ability to turn it on at a moment's notice, he decides to ride with them all the way through, which is a disaster. It was a disastrous decision, of course. Either Pat Riley had, for lack of a better term, a brain fart and just froze uh, as Starks missed shot after shot after shot. Or, as you know, you write in the book, Pat Riley was grudging against Rolando Blackman because Blackman wanted to bring wives along to the NBA Finals. What do you think happened that led to the most egregious management error in the history of New York sports? Um, my honest take, Dave, uh, and you're right, I did leave it inconclusive intentionally, uh, which I, I can't think of anything that I was extremely conclusive about. I tried to let kind of the players and their recollections and the coaches mostly speak for themselves, where I'm not leaving it completely loose, but I'm laying all the options on the table because I was four when this happened. You know, I was I was eight, seven, eight years old when this happened. Um, but, you know, but letting everybody know what the stakes were and what people remember about those stakes. Um, my honest opinion on it is that Riley rode with Starks because he believed in Starks, period. Um, why I included that detail about Rolando Blackman and Riley and him having beef a couple weeks earlier, the whole reason I included it was because so many guys kept mentioning it to me. So many key players. I mean, Charles Oakley has a book coming out Tuesday um, that mentions it and puts blame on it for that reason. Derek Harper mentioned it. Doc Rivers mentioned it. That prompted me to ask Rolando about it, who then said, I'm not sure if that was why. But I've I've certainly wondered whether that was why Pat didn't bring me in. So when literally a third of the team, and that was, you know, there were also people on the team I didn't speak with. I didn't speak with John Starks. I didn't speak with Patrick Ewing. Anthony Mason's not here anymore. 
but like those at that point, that's essentially those are like the most important guys on that team. Um, so I, you know, at that point, we're talking about a third of the team that has has that question in their mind still. Not to mention that Pat Riley has essentially written what I think could maybe be construed as apology letters to Rolando Blackman, handwritten apology letters to him for that decision. It does kind of at least look or feel to them as if Pat was holding him out for that reason. So I, I you know, I don't think that I, I think, you know, I was very careful about trying to explain the context. You know, um, I really appreciated Jeff Van Gundy going on the air the other day in New York on the radio saying that he thought the book was exceptionally fair. And if you know, Van Gundy's generally very critical of the media and the way the media writes things up. Obviously this was a book and not a story, but he thought he, he claimed it was exceptionally fair. And he was asked about that moment as well. He's like, man, I don't know. But he, he was basically saying it made him wonder, too. But he said, I will say that, you know, Pat has called it the biggest mistake Pat Riley ever made as a coach. But Jeff basically said, I would disagree with them because I I would have kept Starks in, too. It's very easy in hindsight to say this is why we lost. But John Starks, to that point, was really their best scorer in that series. Patrick Ewing was was frankly, pretty brutal against Hakeem Olajuwon. He couldn't really do much offensively. So John, through that, became their number one option. He had to be the guy. And he had been lights out games two to six. 21 points per game, seven assists per game, uh, 50% shooting, 45% from three from games two to six. Not to mention he had 16 points in the fourth quarter of game six and had made six shots in a row leading up to the one that got blocked by Olajuwon. Not to mention that he had a double-digit fourth quarter in game five. Not to mention that he had a, a double-digit fourth quarter in game four. So I think all those things together, it's feasible to think that Pat Riley just thought that Starks might have started slow and that he was going to come through in that fourth quarter because he had done it the last three games, because he'd carried them the whole series. Um, obviously, it came back to bite them in the butt, Riley in the butt specifically. Um, but I, I just based on... Starks' hot and cold tendencies, it was completely reasonable, I think, to believe that he was going to come out of that and all he needed to do was make one shot to turn his momentum around because he had done it throughout the series. But, uh, you know, I I definitely thought it was important to include the other possibilities that existed because the players felt like it was important enough to explain that to me. And I felt like, again, I wanted this to to some extent to be their story of what they thought. And I think the fact that they thought that it was even a possibility that Pat might've held him out for that reason is fascinating to me because it says that they think that Pat might be that petty, that he has the potential to be that petty within the way he thinks that the, the, you know, the, the idea of a championship even isn't enough to convince Pat to stop holding a grudge. And that was essentially what they were saying by raising that issue with me in the first place. It's, it's, it's really damning that they would even think that that was, even a possibility it's it's and it's to me for me the most moving moment of the book the most moving sentence of your book was hearing that Rolando Blackman wasn't writing Patrick Pat Riley back like, it's like I'm, I'm not writing you back you know and like it's almost like it broke Rolando Blackman's who's to me a borderline NBA Hall of Famer like it broke his basketball heart to have that happen and then leaving the league at age 33 I mean it just it was really upsetting and it's it's almost like a form of basketball ptsd like i've become like a massive wizards fan uh just living here so many years and my son 
lives and dies with the Wizards. We're watching that 35-point law, uh, <laughs> the comeback. Wow, yeah. Watching them lose a 35-point lead, and Wes Unsell Jr. keeps Spencer Dinwiddie in the entire fourth quarter, even though he has more turnovers than assists, one for 12 from the field. And I look over at my son, and I'm like, I'm reliving 94. It's like, wow. and I explained to him what that meant. Like, it's like the coach is frozen and not putting someone else in when someone clearly doesn't have it. Because I hear what you're saying about hindsight, but, man, it was in pres- in the present moment in a yeah. as a teenager in a chemically addled place. We're all screaming, put in row, <laughs> put in row just for a possession. We need a bucket. You know, so it was. Well, I think that that's the perspective that's helpful that I try to infuse into the book between what you're saying. You know, I spoke to the Rockets about it and spoke, you know, Scott, Scott Brooks says that, you know, Starks was essentially the Rockets best player and that we were happy for every moment that he stayed in. But, you know, we were also petrified because Rolando had killed us his whole career. He knew us well. He played in the same division as us. He had the best, you know, field goal percentage of any team against us. Um and, you know, and he had his highest scoring average against us. So we were petrified. And then I, I mentioned, too, essentially the quote from Red Holzman, who was at the game, who never questioned Riley or second-guessed Riley ever, but did in that moment. And uh, so I, you're, you're right. Like, I, I do think a lot of people were thinking about it. Um, it's also interesting they have Hubert Davis, who, you know, most people were willing to say, like, he didn't look ready for the moment. Like, Pat came down the bench a couple times, and there were players – that didn't want to be named, but they were like, you could just kind of see in Hubert's eyes. He didn't quite look ready for a big moment like that. Um, and he was, I think he was like a second year guy, maybe second year was his rookie year. I can't remember. I think, I think it was second year at that point. Like they were just like, he wasn't quite ready and he could see it, but someone that's veteran, like Rolando Blackman, like, yeah, you wonder how long does it kind of take to get the car started? But you also know he's been in big games before. Like he's a vet. He's, if anybody's ready for this, it's probably him. Um, but they hadn't used him. And so that, to me, maybe that's why I say I don't think Riley, I don't think it was really as much about Rolando as it was Starks. Mm-hmm. Because Rolando hadn't played the whole series. But also, you know, since I've written the book, a couple of those players that I was mentioning before have essentially reached down. They're like, well, why do you think he didn't play earlier in the series? It was the same thing. It was that Riley had made a decision from the get-go like that it was kind of a betrayal of Rolando to kind of question him the way he did. So it wasn't, you know, but he wasn't playing that much before that either. And and so that's why I'm saying I, I'm not completely convinced. Maybe. That's I don't bad. know. It's hard to tell. But he wasn't playing. He wasn't like a key, key part of the rotation. I think that would be different. That would be more like um, Belichick holding out Deion Branch. Um, or was it Deion Branch? I can't Malcolm remember the name Butler. of the receiver. Mal- no, Malcolm not- Butler. I'm sorry. Malcolm Butler, yeah. You're right. It would be more like that, where like if it was someone that was playing every game and then all of a sudden he doesn't, that's one where you like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. It wasn't quite that ridiculous, and uh, you know, and it wasn't written about in that way, but it had been touched on by some of the media outlets, like is Rolando going to get a chance to play in the series? Mm-hmm. And Riley was asked that, and he was like, uh, we'll see. He kind of left it open ended in the middle of the series, and it's. I went back and read that quote. I'm like, this is interesting because it. You, you can't quite tell, but I, I, I'll put it this way, too, and I don't say this in the book, but I asked Riley to speak. I wanted to get him more than anybody for the book. I went to the town he grew up in for the better part of a week in Schenectady in the you know raging snow, um, spent time with his childhood friends, 
Um, even when he declined the interview request, I sent him a list of questions that were pertinent to a lot of this stuff and, you know, gave him a chance to respond to that or give additional context, say if it's completely wrong, there was just no response on it. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I still hope to be able to speak with him about a lot of this stuff. If he likes the book, if he feels like it's a fair portrayal, it'd be great. I'd love to get clarity on it. I would share that with fans if, if and when I get it. Yeah, I see a sequel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, no, no more. <laughs> <laughs> I know what the, I know that feeling. It's like, new topic, please. Um, I know you got to go. Last question, and I ask this of every guest, but I'm particularly curious what you will say. Um, Every book has a soundtrack, uh, you know, in other words, like stuff that, you know, the writer is listening to or thinking about either while you're writing or maybe you're when you're not writing, you're writing about the 90s in New York, such an iconic musical period. What's the Chris Herring soundtrack for Blood in the Garden? Man, I, I actually asked my publicity team if it was realistic. I, I think you've probably seen the book trailer that I had built for it, made mm -hmm. for it. I, I begged. I was like, can we is it even possible within the realm of possibility that we can get mama said, knock you out for this, uh, you know, for this book to use it for the book trailer. LL was a Knicks fan. Maybe he'll let us have the, you know, the music for it. And they're like, yeah, we'll try, but probably not going to happen. But I mean, it was just a physical smash mouth team that the league wanted nothing to do with it. You know, kind of had like an NWA feel to it. I know that's West coast as opposed to, you know, to LL Cool J, but, yeah, I kept coming back to Mama Said Knock You Out because it was a Knicks fan that wrote it. It was, you know, uh, a 90s sound and, a, you know, the, the kind of fit with the time. Mace apparently was like a bouncer at some of LL's parties. Uh, so I was like, that fits. So that was the one I kept thinking about. Awesome. Pass the old gold. Um, this is this is awesome. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing the book. It's a gift. And uh, I can't wait for the next one. Really appreciate you, man. I, I so look forward to meeting you at some point, and yeah. I'm such a big fan of your work and, and everything you stand for. Um, but really look forward to meeting you, and thank you for having me on and for making this fun. Because, like you said, I've done a lot of these, but some of these questions made me think a lot differently about some of this stuff. Thank you. Cool. Uh, yeah, we'll chop it up, and I'll try not to talk about Rolando Blackman the whole time. <laughs> Sounds good. Be well. You too. Thank you so much for having me on, brother. Take care. That was Chris Herring, ladies and gents. Uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. I've been writing about Barry Bonds for 20 years in an effort to make what I have always thought to be an uncomplicated argument. Bonds is one of the greatest baseball players to ever pick up a bat. The stats speak for themselves. As Barry Zverluga wrote in the Washington Post, and I love this passage, so I just quoted it in its entirety. The back of his baseball card looks like it's filled with typos. 
Last year, for instance, Bryce Harper led the majors with a 615 slugging percentage. In 2004, Bonds posted a 609 on base percentage. In that 04 season, Bonds walked 232 times, still a major league record by a mile. The next closest, Barry Bonds in 2002 with 198. The next closest to that, Barry Bonds in 2001 with 177. The names that follow him, Babe Ruth and Ted Williams, two of the best hitters to dig into the box. Bonds owns the top OPS of all time, an incomprehensible 1422 from 04. And only three men have ever produced a single season with an OPS higher than 1250. Bonds, Ruth, and Williams. And they combined for 12 of them. End quote. Now, in addition, in the sport's bluntest stat, home runs, Bonds is, of course, the all-time leader both for a season and a career. Yet this week, in his last year of eligibility, Bonds was shamefully rejected yet again for entry into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The ostensible reason for the pushback against honoring Bonds is the widespread belief that he used performance-enhancing drugs. But it's more complicated than that. First, although it's widely suspected that Bonds juiced, he never actually tested positive. There are also a rack of players already in the Hall of Fame who meet this description. Players whom reporters saw with suspicious acne on their backs or had seasons where their home run totals hit the moon, yet these Hall juicers were generally liked and admired. Bonds always had a prickly personality. As one teammate once said, when Barry says fuck you, he actually means it. This massive chip on his shoulder, an attribute inevitably affixed to unsmiling black athletes, goes far towards explaining why writers and voters have closed the door on his candidacy. In addition, Bonds was part of the steroids era, and some baseball writers believe that they are the gatekeepers for the game's purity, and that Bonds violated that purity. Yet that argument doesn't explain some inconvenient truths. If we are making the Baseball Hall of Fame an institution for the pure, then why is the commissioner who oversaw and ignored the steroid era, Bud Selig, in the Hall of Fame? Why is manager Tony La Russa, someone who oversaw or turned a blind eye to a de facto pharmacy in his locker room, in the Hall of Fame? Why was the popular jovial David Ortiz linked to PEDs just elected on the first ballot? Now, some of these writers also refuse to reckon with the fact that the game has never been pure. The ultimate performance-enhancing drug was the color line which lasted from the turn of the century to 1947. White players didn't have to tussle with black talent and their stats inflated accordingly, yet this hasn't kept the Babe Ruth or Ty Cobbs from Cooperstown. Then in the post-World War II era, players gobbled amphetamines or greenies as if they were Tucker Carlson's erotic ideal of sexy M&Ms. Now for those who say that using any form of synthetic testosterone is a category of performance enhancing all its own, then we can go back way before Bonds' era, as far as the 1960s in baseball, and witness their use. It's certainly picked up in the 1990s thanks to Clinton's bipartisan deregulation of the pharmaceutical industry, which launched what should be understood as an entire steroid era in baseball. This was an era that owners and commissioners overlooked because people love home runs and it was bringing fans to the park, particularly after the 1994 strike slash lockout, which canceled the World Series for the first and only time in history. In this quote unquote steroid era, no one could even come close to the player that was Barry Bonds and perhaps no one ever will.
Steroids don't increase your eyesight. And Bonds, those walk totals are just obscene. Probably had the best eye in the history of the game. Keeping him out of the Hall of Fame is nothing short of a grotesque hypocrisy. Lastly, there was the part of Bonds that can't be quantified by decimal points. I used to go to the stadium early just to watch him hit at batting practice. Seeing him swing the bat, one could commune with what it must have felt like to witness a young Wilt Chamberlain, someone who had not only mastered their sport, but could wield it in their hands like a child's toy. Wilt once led the NBA in assists over the course of an entire season from the center position just to prove he could. Players like this come along once in a century. The Baseball Hall of Fame, which purports to be a museum, and its media voters are in effect denying the sport's true history because it makes them uncomfortable. And heaven knows we already have way too much of that in the United States at the present moment. Yes, it is uncomfortable that the national pastime has been rife over the last 150 years with hyper-competitive people looking for any possible edge to win with all the attendant money and glory that brings. But it's also the truth. Much better that we reckon with our discomfort and confront our hypocrisies rather than shutting our eyes and closing our ears until all that was beautiful about Barry Bonds playing baseball cruelly dissipates. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back for the part of the show that everybody seems to love more than the other parts of the show. It's called Jake's Takes. Jake's Takes! Where I speak to my son, Jacob, about what his football predictions are going to be. Jake, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So last week... Four remarkable NFL playoff games. Uh, each one decided on the final play. Unbelievable. I mean, what can you even say about it? But we don't really care about that so much as we care about how you did in the games themselves. So, well, let's just quick recap. Titans, Bengals. Uh, yeah, you picked the Bengals. Mm-hmm. The Bengals won with a field goal at the very end. Although the they Titans not, yeah. Titans yak that up though. Yeah, they you know. I mean, does Ryan Tannehill ever start again for that team? What do you think? I mean, he probably will, but I don't think he deserves. It. I think he's in, not even like top fifteen. You think they're maybe going to draft a QB and uh, put him on the bench and start Tannehill at the start of the year, maybe something like that? I don't think they'll do that, but you never know. You never know. Mm. Hey, amp up the excitement a little bit. Do I have All to right. force feed you coffee or something? Right. I'm tired, boy. Why are you tired? Because you had you had a we had a COVID masked sleepover. Yeah, masked. All right, masked. moving forward. Moving forward. Forty Nine ers Packers. Forty Nine ers Packers got that wrong. Got you in in America got that wrong. Except for old Dave Z over here. You did not think that the Packers are gonna? I mean, lose. Yes, I certainly did. That is bullcrap. Oh, I totally did. Now, as for these Forty Nine ers, um, 
they won that game. Yeah, yeah. so the, at the, the very end. All right, the next one, Rams, uh, Rams versus the Bucks. I mean, I, I did get that. You know, it was a very good game. Matt, Matt Stafford and the Rams versus the retired Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. Can't believe it. The retired Tom Brady. <sighs> great game, though. And it was then, a great game. Brady brought him back from 27 to 3. In a lot of ways, that's a great last game for him. Mm-hmm. And then Bills, Chiefs. Best game you've ever seen in the NFL, maybe? <sighs> maybe. It's I, in the conversation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 100%. One of the best playoff, probably the best playoff game I've ever watched with my own eyes. But Really upsetting, though, the fact that for such a great game, you want a team to earn the victory. I'm not. I'm never going to say the Chiefs earned that because um, that the, the Bills coaching staff yacked that up. 12 seconds to go, kick a damn squib kick. Hold their best players, take penalties, call it a day. But what they did was criminal. Seconds, criminal to Josh Allen and the good people of Buffalo. Yes, I know there's a beep in the background. You know what that is? That's my blood pressure going off. All right. Now let's take it to this week. Who is going to play in the Super Bowl? Bengals or the Chiefs? Who do you got? As you certainly know, I hate both of these teams. Despise. Just, me too. Just how I hate the Bengals and the Titans. I I would love to see Joe Shiesty in the Super Bowl. Such a fun player. That'd be Joe Burrow's nickname, Joe Shiesty. We went over this last time. Yes. Yes, we did. Okay, go on. And you know Jamar Chase. That's a, it's such a fun roster. I just don't think that they're Super Bowl ready, and I don't know if that defense would be capable to really lock down the 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 Chiefs led or the um yeah the Chiefs led Patrick Mahomes. No, the Patrick Mahomes led Chiefs. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> and like the the Bengals did it before in the regular season, beat them thirty four thirty one, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if they did it again, man, that would be impressive. But I I just don't see the Bengals pulling it off. And I'm gonna go with the the safe pick, and say the Chiefs are gonna win. I I don't know unless you're just like a super Cincinnati homer or. One of those people who just makes predictions so you don't sound like what everybody else says. Ugh, I hate that. But I don't see how anybody who lives in the land of logic can pick uh, against the well, Chiefs. I, I could certainly see the Bengals. You can see a scenario where definitely. they can win. Okay, okay. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I, I, I really think that this is going to be a great AFC championship game. And uh, Tyron Mathieu will be back. After missing almost the entire Bills game with a kick to the head. Okay. That's huge when you're talking about Burrow in the passing game. Because mm-hmm. I think Matia is a future Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. Very good player. I, I noticed you haven't you haven't gotten mad at me for saying... Ma- yeah, I'd love to see him in a Ravens uniform. You're not mad at me for saying Matia? I, I really do hate it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you say these weird names. Like Joe Shiesty. Joe Shiesty and Ty- throwing Tyron, against Tyron Matia. Tyron Matthew. Okay. And then... Uh, the NFC Championship. Oh, damn, you're just jumping right ahead. Yes, NFC Championship. <laughs> Great game. In-division matchup. In-division rival. It's going to be so good. 49ers at LA facing the Rams. It's going to be a great game. And I think I am going to look at the rematch. This is going to be a rematch game of the 54-51. to 51. Oh, no. 54-51. to 51. The famous Rams-Chiefs game. Rams-Chiefs 20, 2018. Yeah. Jared Goff 
he's not. Of course, he's not there anymore, and he he sucks. Oh, but this no, is a much be better quarterback. A much better both both of them are much better teams, and this is gonna be a very good Super Bowl. Chiefs Rams and Chiefs Rams. All right, just let's just go on the record. Chiefs. 49ers. She's 49ers. Oh, yeah. I like the, the Jimmy I, G I, I revenge to tour, I think, I is mean, real. I would love to see that. I just think. This 49ers I, 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 team is so tough. Like, if this 49ers team was down 21 to 7 in the fourth quarter, I would still be like, I believe in this team. They are 49ers, tough. The only reason why they're here is because they face the Packers on a snow day. This is, this is a run team, this is a run game team that. It is benefited because they faced a pass-heavy team on a day where it was not good weather for the pass. If that's a regular day, it like a solid like forty degrees. You say the Packers win. Packers smoke them. Except well, Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers chokes in every playoffs game every year. <laughs> Seems that. That's why I picked against him going into the 49ers. You did not pick the 49ers. I did pick the 49ers. Oh, my God. That's bullcrap. Is that bullcrap? Yes. Then you don't get any of the money I won betting on the 49ers. Uh, You did not bet on the 49ers. I did. I'd love to see that ticket. Oh, you'd love to see that ticket? Mm. No, now you get none of the privileges because you have no belief. Okay, I guess I have no belief. Okay, fair enough. your, Your new name is Ryan No Belief. Okay. Get it? Like Ryan Leaf? Oh, I didn't get it at first, but yeah. I guess I get it now. That was kind of a, a dad joke. Okay. Well, all right. So we got a Super Bowl all set up. Uh, Kansas City Chiefs against the LA Rams, says Jake. Mm-hmm. I'm throwing down with Kansas City Chiefs. We'll be playing the San Francisco 49ers. Be so fun. with and Now that they've just finally figured out how to use Debo Samuel, which they didn't back then, I'm so excited. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Chris Herring. Thank you so much for uh, writing this terrific book, uh, Blood in the Garden, The Flagrant History of the 90s Knicks. People should check it out. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. Uh, thank you for everybody who's listening and makes it work. If you like the pod, please tell everybody. Spread the word. Do your thing. Uh, please, please, please mask up. Stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.